Today's message comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated, even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Are you, and are you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in a brief moment of prayer. Gracious God, Heavenly Father. Lord, we pray that as we begin to walk through um, this chapter, 1 Corinthians 5, today and over the next three Sundays, and as we deal with this difficult topic that so many other churches and Christians would just rather avoid. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to bow before your word. We pray that you would cause us to realize and remember that the words written here are the very words of God. This is not something that is passe, but something that very much applies and is needed in the church today to have a healthy and biblical church. And so we pray that you would enable us to to rightly understand your word and that we would not seek to interpret your word in light of our logic or rationale emotion or experience or tradition, but that we would simply allow your word to speak for itself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So years ago, many, 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 many years ago, when I was in college and I was uh, uh, majoring in religious studies is what they Uh, called it then. It was a Baptist university, in fact, local uh, Baptist university here, the University of Mary Hardin Baylor. Uh, I think now they call it uh, Christian studies or biblical studies. They've changed the name since then. And uh, I was taking that uh, several classes, and one of the classes that I was taking at the time is a class on pastoral ministry. And uh, it is one of those classes that is designed to help young uh, men preparing for pastoral ministry, and it's designed to, to prepare them uh, for it and, and what to expect and what that will be like. Um, although since then, I have often thought about going back and asking for my money back. <laughs> because I've learned since then that nothing can prepare you for pastoral ministry except pastoral ministry. Um, But I'm taking this class, and the professor in that class um, is not just a professor, but he is also a full-time minister and was pastoring a a local church, um, had been a uh, a senior pastor at that church for uh, several decades, so he had a lot of experience, which is helpful and valuable when you're taking a class like that. And one day, I remember that the conversation, the, the topic turned toward, what do you do with sin in the church? How do you deal with that? And of course, the, the example that was thrown out, which is a very common example that is oftentimes thrown out, is what do you, what do, you do with the, the, the couple in the church that um, are members of the church? They come faithfully. They are there every Sunday, morning and night. They're at Bible study midweek. They serve in various roles. 
but they are living together and are not married. What do you do with a situation like that? So all of these young men are looking up at this senior pastor and wondering, how, how do we deal with that? And so the whole class gets into this conversation, and they're all throwing out different ideas, um, you know, that, that well, you've got you to come alongside them. You know, you need to pray for them. You need to just love on them. You know, maybe, maybe someone should offer to disciple them and, you know, just sort of walk through a book, and, you know, maybe they'll sort of see the light. I don't know. You know, and you just, you, you, try, to, you try to come at it at a, at a certain angle to to try to help them as, as best you can without upsetting them. After listening for a while, I uh, decided to throw out the idea of, well, you know, there is Matthew 18. And uh, as I began to explain Matthew 18 and they understood where I was going, um, you would have thought I pulled out a loaded gun in class. Because their eyes got about this big. And suddenly, I was the, uh, the, the, the subject of verbal attack in that, in that classroom. Um, the idea was that you can't, you can't do that. You know, go to them privately and then bring two or three other people with you. This is Matthew 18, verses 15 and following. Bring them before the church. One individual in particular said, you know, if you do that, you're going to... You're going to drive them out of the church? And wouldn't it be better for them to be in the church rather than outside of the church? Wouldn't it be better for them to be in the church where they can hear the word of God being read and proclaimed and and have a Christian influence in their life rather than driving them outside the church? They may never set foot inside of a church again if you do that. The professor, after a while, redirected the conversation. I think he was fearful for my life. Um, And we got on to a different topic. But to be fair, and and I try to do that, I try to put myself in other people's shoes. To be fair, I, I think their heart was in the right place. I think many of them were thinking of passages such as the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. I wouldn't want to be driven out of the church. I wouldn't want to have my sins drugged before the church exposed. That's terrible. I wouldn't want to do that. Right? Or the golden rule, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Treat others the way you would want to be treated. They may have had passages in mind, such as 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's the way a lot of Christians think. It's the way a lot of churches think. We got to just love them. We got to do the loving thing for them, come alongside them. The trouble is that they and many other Christians simply don't realize the implications of what they are saying. Because the implications of what they are saying is that following Matthew 18, the teachings of Christ in Matthew 18, following the example that Paul sets for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is not loving. In other words, what Jesus taught in Matthew 18 and what Paul instructs the church to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is not the loving thing to do. Another way of looking at that is they're actually saying this, that if we ignore Matthew chapter 18, Jesus' teachings in Matthew chapter 18, And if we ignore the example that Paul sets for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we can actually be more loving than Christ and Paul. Of course, we know that nobody can be more loving than Christ. 
And there are very few, I think, who could be more loving than Paul. But that is the implications of what churches and Christians are saying when they think it best to ignore Matthew 18 or 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In the end, we must ever keep in mind Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, do not go beyond what is written. Don't go beyond the word of God. Don't seek to borrow from your logic or from your rationale. Because that's what Christians do. That's what it means to go beyond the word of God. They borrow from logic. You see, logically, it doesn't make sense to drive them out of the church where they won't be exposed to Christianity. Logically, wouldn't it make sense to just come alongside them and embrace them and and try to figure out a different way to do it rather than going through Matthew chapter 18? See, the problem is, though, God does not command us to do that which is logical. He commands us to obey. There are times when God's word seems illogical to us. It seems irrational to us. It it doesn't make sense. It probably didn't make sense to Abraham to sacrifice your only son. But Abraham understood God doesn't call me to do what's rational. He calls me to obedience. And there's all kinds of scripture that we will come across that seems irrational, right? That seems illogical. Jesus says that you should forgive your brother or sister as many times as they sin against you and come to you asking for forgiveness. Yet so oftentimes our rationale, and so oftentimes even the church and Christianity will say, That doesn't make sense. There has got to be a cutoff somewhere because they're just going to keep doing it. Jesus says, as many times, you are to forgive. That goes against our logic. That goes against our emotions and our experience. The husband who says, what do I do with my wife? Who's horrible to live with? I can't handle it. The Bible says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. You just keep loving her, no matter what she's like. Yeah, but she's terrible. Yeah, well, so is the bride of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. And how often do we sin against Christ in the same way, daily, over and over and over and over again, yet every time we come to Christ asking for forgiveness, he forgives. Or the couple that is struggling in their marriage and they're looking for marriage counseling and they go to biblical counselors to get counseling Which, by the way, I'm not against biblical counseling. I think biblical counseling is good. I think studying it, striving to be certified in it and to help others in their struggles is a good thing. I just like to remind people that not every biblical counselor is biblical. If the counsel they offer is biblical, then it's good. But I had a conversation like this recently with a couple that went to a biblical counselor for their marriage. And they were sharing with me that, you know, the counselor just says we need to communicate better. We need to to find middle ground. When we fight and we can't agree on things, we we need to compromise more. We need to find the middle ground. And he comes halfway and I come halfway. And and that's what we need to work on. And they were shocked, but I said to them, that's not biblical. What? What? Well, sure, you need to talk, you need to communicate, and if you can find common ground, that's great, but if you've been married for any length of time, you know that there are times when there is no middle ground. When it's either A or B, we either have to go left or we got to go right. There is no in-between. 
And the Bible says when that happens, the husband is the head of the family. There's a lot of people that say, that doesn't make sense. That goes against my experience and logic. But I didn't write the Bible. It's just my job to teach it. And that's what God says. God calls us to be obedient to his word, to not go beyond that which is written. Don't borrow from our logic. Don't borrow from our emotions. My emotions, my experience says I ought to do this or we ought to do that. But my friends, you need to understand, you cannot trust your emotions or your experience because they are deceiving You cannot trust yourself as far as you can throw you. I don't trust myself as far as I can throw me. The only thing we can trust is God's word. What does scripture say? Don't borrow from the culture or from the world's philosophy. What does everybody else do? How do they deal with it? What do they do in this situation? Look to God's word. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. You need to underline that. Do not go beyond what is written. This is what caused many of the problems for the church in Corinth. Because Paul has been correcting this from the very beginning, right? The first four chapters, he's telling them, quit borrowing from the world's philosophy. Stick to the word of God in dealing with your issues. And even if all they had was the Old Testament, they would have gathered from Leviticus 18.8, Deuteronomy 22.30, Deuteronomy 27.20, Leviticus 19.17. In those passages, it clearly states that if a man lies with his father's wife, he is accursed by God and is to be cut off from the covenant community. But they weren't doing that. They thought, well, I don't know. We don't see a problem with it. It's not bothering us. So they left it alone. So Paul has been correcting them about this from the very beginning. Not to go beyond what is written. Don't borrow from the world's philosophy. Don't borrow from the culture that is around you. And then he reminds them when he gets to chapter 4, verse 14, if you remember, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. All the things that he has written, correcting them. Beginning of chapter 3, referring to them as spiritual infants, all of the things that he is going to correct them about as we walk through this book, and there are many other things that they are doing wrong, that Paul's going to correct them. It's important to remember chapter 4, verse 14. Paul is not writing these things to upset them, to shame them, to insult them, but to admonish them as his beloved children. And that word beloved is important. It's from the Greek word agapetos. It's related to the Greek word agape. You can hear the similarities, right? Agape, love, agape toss. Agape toss literally means one who is greatly loved. Paul says, I write these things to you, these things that are difficult for you to hear because I love you. Because that's what love does. Love is willing to do that which is difficult for someone else. Love is willing to say that which may be difficult to say, that which may be difficult for someone else to hear because we love them. Yet so often, sadly, Christians don't speak up because they are afraid of what they might think. They're afraid of how that person might react to them, what they might say to them. So oftentimes, Christians are more concerned with 
salvaging the relationship. They value the relationship with that person more than they value their eternal destiny or their spiritual maturity. Because if you follow what Paul is going to teach us in this chapter, and what we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 18, there will be times when people will appreciate you approaching them and talking to them about their poor behavior. And trust me, I know there will be times when people will become angry. And they will cut you off, and you'll never see them again. But my philosophy in life is that I would rather have somebody hate me in the knowledge that I tried to do what was best for them rather than have them like me because I simply ignored doing what was best and most loving for them. Because if I seek to lovingly correct someone and they hate me, I still sleep well at night because I did what God commands me to do, which is the loving thing to do. And so then Paul reminds them then of an issue that they have going on in their church, and he brings it up in the first couple of verses, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, it is likely that this relationship is with the man's mother-in-law and not with his biological mother, simply because of the language that Paul uses. I'm just giving you the context as best I can. Because if it was his biological mother, then Paul would have said, it's actually been reported among you that a man has his own mother. The Greek language was a very developed language. Paul would have used that kind of wording. But instead, he says his father's wife, which is the kind of language that is borrowed from the Old Testament. So we have a situation here where a man remarries, maybe he's a widower and he remarries, but then eventually the son grows up and runs away with his wife, which is bad enough. It would be, of course, even worse if they were biologically related. But we don't know for sure the circumstances, but most theologians believe that this is a mother-in-law and he says that they have a sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. Those two words, sexual immorality, is actually one word in the Greek. It is the Greek word porneia. It's from where we get our English word, pornographic or pornography. That word in the New Testament and also in extra-biblical um, uh, extra-biblical Greek literature, everywhere we find it, has to do with all forms of deviant physical sexual behavior. I'll say that again. It has to do with all forms of deviant physical sexual behavior. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19 when he says, I tell you that if any man divorces his wife except on the grounds of Porneia, sexual immorality, he causes her to commit moikeia, a different Greek word, adultery. In other words, the grounds for adultery, according to Jesus, is physical, deviant, sexual behavior. So it's a word that would have included homosexuality, pedophilia, bestiality. It's just deviant, physical, sexual behavior of various kinds. It's not very specific. Paul says that these individuals are behaving in a way and engaging in sexual immorality of a kind that is not even heard among the pagans. That's an astounding statement to make. Because if you've studied your Greek or Roman history, you know they were pretty loosey-goosey with sexual behavior. Homosexuality was not looked down upon in ancient Greece. Uh, pedophilia was not looked down upon among the Romans. 
And if you were going to worship in the temple of Diana or the temple of Aphrodite, the way in which you would do that is you would bring a sum of money, which was a gift that you would donate to the temple, but then you would also engage in sexual intercourse with either the priest or the priestess that they had there. And that was a way in which you worship the goddess Diana or the goddess Aphrodite. So when Paul says of a kind that is not even named among the pagans, well, that is true. This would have been shocking to the Jews, of course, but also it would have been shocking to the Greeks and the Romans because this kind of behavior was actually banned under Roman law. A law that was passed by the emperor Augustine around the year 18 B.C. forbid this kind of relationship. They thought, okay, there's a lot of things you can do, but that's one that you can't do. Your own mother? Okay, that's beyond the pale. There's actually written evidence about this as well. In my research, I came across a quote by Cicero, and Cicero was a first-century Roman statesman. And uh, Cicero um, writes this. Apparently, he is aware of a situation similar to this where a man has his father's wife, is in, in a relationship with them. And Cicero says this regarding that situation. Quote, to think of the woman's sin, unbelievable, unheard of in all experience, save for this single instance. To think of her wicked passion, unbridled, untamed, to think that she did not quail, even if not before the vengeance of heaven or the scandal among men. This is an unbeliever who says, this is just, this is something you don't do. And yet, this is something that is happening in the church of Corinth. It's also likely that this woman is an unbeliever and that she is not a member of the church simply because Paul doesn't address her. He only addresses the man. Probably because you look down at verse 12 and 13 of that chapter, and he says, Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside the church. So this is probably a situation where the man is a member. He's coming to church. His wife, his mother-in-law, does not come. Maybe she's still a pagan. Maybe she says, That religion's for you. I'm going to worship the pagan gods. But the point is that everybody in the church knows what's going on and nobody is doing anything about it. They are simply allowing it to continue. And Paul is shocked by their arrogance. Right? He says in verse 2, and you are arrogant, prideful, boastful, not arrogant about the situation. They're not boasting in that man's situation He is saying that they are arrogant as a church. And the church in Corinth was. They were very prideful. They thought they had it all together. They're a great church. They're so spiritually mature. They've got all these spiritual gifts that they're using, prophecy and tongues and miracles. And we are so far ahead of all of the other churches. In fact, Paul has addressed their pride already on numerous occasions, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, verse 8, verse 10, verse 18, and verse 19, Paul addresses their pride. And he's just shocked by it. That you've got this situation going on in the church, and yet you are such a prideful church. You think you've got it all together, and you're so spiritually mature. But rather than being prideful, Paul says, you ought to be mourning. You ought to mourn. They ought to mourn the way Paul mourns, right? I mean, Paul does tell them in verse 16 to be imitators of me. Last week, we looked at a snapshot of Paul, and I shared this verse with you from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That was Paul. You know, if anyone had a right to be prideful, it it was Paul. Paul was an apostle chosen by Christ, could perform miracles and heal people. But yet, Paul 
mourned his own sinfulness. Paul did not have a chip on his shoulders. He says to the church in Corinth, you have this going on in your church and yet you're so prideful. When in reality, you ought to be mourning. They ought to be mourning in the way the tax collector mourns in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 and following. Remember that story? Jesus says he also told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That's the church in Corinth. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but would beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Paul says, that's what you ought to be like. You should mourn the sin that exists within your church and not be so prideful. Not only should they be mourning, Paul says, but they should remove this man from their church. Remove him from the church. Clearly, Paul has in mind the teachings of Christ from Matthew chapter 18. I don't believe Paul is making this stuff up. Yes, he was not one of the original disciples, but we do know from the book of Acts and from Galatians that after Paul's conversion, he spends about three years in the wilderness putting himself through this entire course of Old Testament biblical theology, trying to figure out where did I go wrong with understanding who the Messiah is. But then he goes to Jerusalem, and he spends a lot of time with the apostles. Certainly would have learned from them many of the teachings of Christ. Also, we know that Luke was a companion of Paul, as Paul traveled around, Luke is writing the gospel of Luke. He's interviewing people. He's doing research. So Paul would have been familiar with the teachings of Christ. But he would have also gotten this from the Old Testament as well. Right? Leviticus 20.11, as I've mentioned. Leviticus 18.8. Deuteronomy 22.30. Deuteronomy 27.20. So Paul tells them that they ought to remove these, this individual from the church. The point is that Paul is not making this up. Paul is not being cruel. Paul is not being unloving. Paul understands that this is a biblical mandate for someone who refuses to repent of their sin. So as I said, he's getting this biblical mandate, I believe, from Matthew chapter 18. So now if you'll turn with me there, we're going to spend the rest of our time in Matthew 18. Because we have to understand Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, in order to properly understand 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, oftentimes referred to as the passage on church discipline. I don't like that title. Um, I prefer to call it the passage on church accountability. Discipline has such a negative connotation where accountability is more positive, and I do think that's what Jesus is talking about. It is the passage on church accountability. But in order to properly understand Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, we have to understand it in light of its context. And the context is verses 12 to 14. Listen to what Jesus says. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven 
that one of these little ones should perish. It is not God's will that one of his people should perish, and when one wanders away, God will go after that one straggling sheep. What does that look like to go after a sheep that has wandered away? Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20 is what that looks like. Verses 15 to 20 is what it looks like to go after the one sheep that is wandered away. In other words, what Jesus is telling us is that God uses the church and church accountability as a secondary causation in order to pursue the one sheep that wanders away. And so then... In verse 15 of that text, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, first of all, in the ESV and also the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, there is the words against you. There is some debate as to whether or not those two words should be there. That is simply because in the oldest, most reliable Greek manuscripts, those two words aren't there. They're in there, about half of them. About half of them, they're there. And in about half of them, they are not there. Which is why the New American Standard Bible, the King James Version, the New King James Version, and the NIV do not have the words against you. The New American Standard simply says, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. I think that is the better reading um, because it is, and most scholars would say this, it is more likely that a scribe may have inserted against you to try to give it more understanding, to make it more applicable. But it's better to take it if your brother simply sins. I think this is what Jesus meant. I think it's how we should read it because it's not just if your brother sins against you, it's if your brother or sister sins, period. If you see them behaving in a way that is sinful, if you see some sinful character trait come up where they are short-tempered or they are speaking cruelly to their wife or to their husband or to their children, Jesus is telling us in Matthew 18, 15, listen, you have a biblical right to go and talk to that brother or sister in Christ. You see, we forget that sometimes. We think, well, what right do I have to go and talk to them about their sin? Jesus says you have a biblical duty. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. That's a commandment, beloved. You are commanded to go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. See, this is probably the problem the church in Corinth had. Is that it wasn't a sin against them, right? I mean, we know what he's doing, but it's not against us. I mean, that's just sort of his issue. You know, we'll, we'll pray for him. But Jesus is saying, if your brother sins, period. If he's engaging in sinful behavior, you are commanded to go and lovingly confront your brother or sister in Christ. But not just sinful behavior, we are also talking about sinful beliefs. If you know that your brother or sister in Christ is reading some false theology, they're listening to false theology, they are getting sucked down the wrong theological road, you have a biblical duty to go to that person and confront them. And if they don't listen to you, Jesus will go on to say, then you go and you visit them with two or three other people. You see, that's where the real rub comes in oftentimes. Because if you're the only one who knows about this, now you need to go and share this with two or three other people and confront them. That's not going to go well. But that's what Jesus says we should do. 
Because the idea is that there is strength in numbers. That if I can't persuade that person by myself, because I just don't have enough Bible knowledge, I can't think of the right arguments, well, then maybe two or three of us can persuade him. And if that doesn't work, then you bring it to the church. The idea is to bring even more people to bear upon that issue. And what we always need to remember is the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.14. It is not to shame them. It is not to embarrass them. It is not to drive them out of the church. It is to prevent them, hopefully, from leaving the church. And going down the wrong road to bring them back onto the right path. Jesus may have had in mind Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17, when he said this, which says this, and I'm reading from the NIV because I think the NIV has a great translation. Leviticus 19, 17 says this, Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so that you will not share in their guilt. Did you catch that? Rebuke them so that you will not share in their guilt. In other words, according to Leviticus 19.17, that if you don't go to them, if you don't follow the steps of Matthew 18, go to them privately, then go to them with two or three people, then bring them before the church, If they go the wrong way, if they apostatize, Leviticus 19, 17, and according to Jesus, you bear a certain level of culpability for their demise. That's why Paul says in Galatians 6, 1, that if anyone is caught, if anyone, Paul says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, You who are spiritual, which is all believers, restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. Or we can think of passages like James 4.17. James 4.17 says this. This is one of those little verses that Christians like to conveniently block out of their head because they don't like this verse. James 4.17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. If you know, I ought to talk to that person. I ought to bring other people into this conversation. I ought to bring this to the attention of the church, and you do nothing. James says, you have sin against God and against your neighbor. Because what did we just read in the reading of the law? The fulfilling of the law is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you were going down the wrong path, wouldn't you want someone to try to help you? But if that doesn't work, Jesus goes on to say in verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, The idea is simply this, love does not easily give up on a brother or sister in Christ. Your behavior is wrong. This is sinful. You can't do this. What you're studying, what you're reading is wrong. This is dangerous. It's going to harm you. Well, don't tell anybody. Oh, no, I will. Why? Because I love you. You don't change I am going to tell somebody. Love does not easily give up on a brother or sister in Christ. And if that doesn't work, Jesus goes on to say in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Wow. See, a lot of Christians, they hear that and they think, that's horrible. You're just going to embarrass them? You're going to bring their sin before the church? That don't make any sense. That's just going to harm them. That's going to drive them out of the church. Well, what do you trust more, the teachings of Christ or your own logic? Jesus says, this is what we are to do. It may not make sense. We may not like it, but God doesn't call us to do what makes sense. He calls us to be obedient. 
Because this is what love does. And then he says, the second half of verse 17, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Notice the order, Gentile and a tax collector. Because Jews who collected taxes for the Roman army and occupying force against their Jewish neighbors were like the lowest of the low. I mean, really, in the Jewish mind, there was like Gentiles and catfish and tax collectors. They were just the scum of the scum. They were viewed to be outside of the covenant community of God. You cannot possibly be saved if you're a Gentile, certainly not, and if you're a tax collector. They were to be shunned. But it's important to keep in mind, because this is often what's known as excommunication. Right? Treat them like an unbeliever. The idea is that, and we'll talk more about this when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 12, the last part of that section. We'll get into more details about what is excommunication, what does it look like. But basically, the idea is that if a person is behaving like an unbeliever, if they're living like an unbeliever, if they are holding to theology that is heretical, then they are to be treated and viewed as being an unbeliever which means that you put them outside the church because only believers can be members of the covenant community of God. Only believers can be in a saving covenantal relationship with God. So if they are going to act like unbelievers, then you treat them like unbelievers, Jesus says, like Gentiles and tax collectors because the Jews would have understood what that meant. However, it is also important to note when we ask that question, what does that mean to put them outside of the church? What does it mean to treat them like Gentiles and tax collectors? Keep in mind, and we'll get more into this later, but keep in mind that according to Numbers chapter 15, you know, Gentiles were allowed to offer free will offerings at the temple in the Old Testament. These were, these were non-Jews who were living within the physical boundaries of the covenant community, and if they were thankful for being blessed by the God of the Jews, they were allowed to go to the temple and offer a free will offering to the priests, and the priests would take it, burn it on the altar as a way of thanking the God of the Jews. They could do that. Also, we know from Acts chapter 14, verse 1, that in the New Testament, Gentiles, often referred to as God-fearers, were allowed inside the synagogue. If they were a God-fearer, you know, I'm liking what I'm hearing about this Judaism stuff. I'm not quite there yet, but I'd like to come into the synagogue and kind of sit and listen. They were allowed to do that. Gentiles were allowed inside the synagogue. We also know as well from 1 Corinthians 14, 23, that Paul fully believed and expected that there would be unbelievers attending church in the New Testament. That's when he says, you know, if you're going to speak in tongues, you've got to have an interpreter because if an unbeliever is in your midst and you're speaking in tongues without an interpreter, they're going to think you're all insane and uh, they're going to think you're crazy. So he says, you've got to have an interpreter. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 14. But the point is he understood that unbelievers will be in church and they should be allowed to come into church. God-fearers hearing what we're talking about. But nonetheless, there are times, and we'll see that in verses 9 to 12 of 1 Corinthians, there are times when the person is to be physically put out of the church, and there are times when they are simply to be removed from church membership. For now, suffice it to say this, this is why church membership matters. Because before you can put someone out of the church, we have to first know who's in the church. You can't put somebody out of the church if you don't know who's in the church. So God's providential timing is great. I'm going to use this as a plug for our new members class that is coming up. And I'm going to gently, in my most loving way, say that if you're not a member of this church or of some other church, 
you need to be. It is biblical. It is required. It is dangerous to not be a member of a church because there is no real accountability outside of church membership. So you should sign up for the new members class. The point, however, to the entire message is this. Believers have a biblical mandate. All believers have a biblical mandate from Christ to lovingly, gently, but certainly hold each other accountable. Because this is what love does. This is what love looks like. Because we all need to be held accountable by somebody. And that accountability has to have teeth. And it can't without church membership. Because we are all still sinful by nature. Yes, we're not dead in our sins if you're a believer, but we still have a sin nature that the new nature fights against. And because of that, all of us, myself included, are always just a half step away from sliding down the slippery slope. And we all need someone to come alongside us and keep us on the right path. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the instructions of your Son, Jesus Christ, from Matthew 18, and for the example that Paul sets in his instructions in 1 Corinthians 5. But Father, we pray that you would enable us to be this kind of church, a church that genuinely loves the saints, a church that genuinely loves our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, not just with our words by saying that we do, but by being willing to take action to lovingly hold each other accountable when it is needed. And Lord, I pray that we would be the kind of church that when we find ourselves on the receiving end of accountability, that we would view it coming from the person as it is intended, that this person is correcting me because they love me. I pray that you would help us to ever keep that in mind and that as a church, we would bring you great honor and glory and praise. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.